You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with us as we dive into part eight of our eight-week series called The Letters. We have looked for the past seven weeks, this is our eighth, into the letters that were written to the churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. First week, we just kind of unpacked Revelation 1 to set the stage. All that to say, final week of that series that I have really, really enjoyed teaching. But before I dive into that, I want to make mention of this. Christmas Eve, we are going to be meeting at the 8th and Main Building in beautiful downtown Grandview, Missouri. So if you were looking for a Christmas Eve service, maybe your family is here in town and you're going, oh, what should we do for Christmas Eve? Four o'clock, we're going to gather there. It's going to be very simple, very family oriented. If you're thinking, oh, what if I bring my kids and they make noise? They can sit with my kids who will also make noise. And so it's all good. It's going to be fun. It's uh, just be a good time to set the tone for the evening. Give your family some things to go home and think about and ponder on Christmas Eve and on into Christmas Day. Hope to see you 8th and Main in Grandview, 4 p.m. on Christmas Eve. Enough about that. On to the letters of Revelation, focusing this week on the last letter, which was written to the Church of Laodicea. I've got a fair amount of preliminary remarks before we dive into the the text here. Please, if you're visiting, trust me, we will teach the Bible. I will get to the verses. But I kind of want to lay the the grid of of the land before we get into it so we know uh, why he is saying what he is saying. I want to reiterate, these letters really matter. They really, really matter. And they will matter more to us in years to come as we get more and more understanding of how we fit into the storyline of God. The people of Asia Minor that these letters are written to have more in common experientially with the bulk of Christian history than we do. When we look at our own experience, we are the anomaly. Most of Christian history and most of Christianity around the world lives in a world more like they lived, not technologically, but socially and culturally and by way of persecution, we're not the norm. Most of what they faced in the way of persecution seems so foreign to us that it's almost quaint. Oh, look at the little Ephesians. See how they walked that out. Look at the Philadelphians. Look at the Laodiceans. And even when we realize that it happens here in the United States, we still hold it as an, or not in the United States, but in, in our world, we hold it as an arm's distance. Oh, the, those from Myanmar. Oh, that happens over there. That happens in Afghanistan. Jesus spoke to all of us about persecution. And he spoke to us about it because one day we will see it. We tend to read what Jesus said to the disciples as if we are eavesdropping on a congregation. He is speaking to them. He's not speaking to us. In reality, he was speaking to them, but he was always also speaking to us. If his words didn't have eternal application, they wouldn't have been put in Scripture. To believe in the power of the Bible, you've got to believe in the application of the Bible. So how do we apply this? In Matthew 10, Jesus is speaking to the disciples about the days that will come, and he describes a day of great persecution, which they, in fact, did endure. But he's not only speaking to them. He's describing what it will mean to be a follower of Jesus through history. And at one point he says, And you will be hated for all my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end 
will be saved. He says life is full of challenges, but it's full of hope. And we look at people who are being persecuted and we think, oh, those poor people. So, so tragic that that happens to them. Western Christianity has largely been void of challenges and simultaneously low on hope. We're not challenged and we're discouraged at the same time. We read these letters of Revelation with the understanding that the pressure that they endured or failed to endure is not a dot in history that happened and went away. It is something that has happened over and over and over again and will indeed one day be a part of our world. It is criminally naive to think that their experiences and their reactions will not be ours one day. So we read these letters and we learn and we prepare. Think of these letters, these seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3 as a study guide for the future. The name Laodicea, we're going to talk about the letter to Laodicea today. The name Laodicea means the rule of the people. Laodiceans had great faith in their own ability to make things happen, even though it didn't always work the way they wanted it to. They considered themselves to be the sole decision maker and the sole uh, decider of their future. They're almost mirroring the culture that we read about in the book of Judges where it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They were determined to determine for themselves what the future looked like. That's kind of the world that we live in today. This idea that everyone charts their own course. The cry of our society is, who are you to tell me what to do? I'm the one that can decide what is right in my own eyes. The most offensive thing you can be in the age that we live in is to be certain of something. People go bonkers if you're sure. I saw somebody on Twitter the other day that said that the idea of sharing your faith with someone else was a violent act because it came against their sensibilities so violently. Somebody replied, are you sure? I said, well, yes, I'm sure. Well, isn't that a violent act, you being so sure that we're wrong? There's this idea that everyone determines what's right in their own eyes. If the letters of Revelation were a sentence on the state of the church, the letter to Laodicea is the exclamation point on the idea that we cannot accurately examine our own hearts or determine what is right in our own lives. We've got to allow the Lord to examine our hearts. Each week, we've looked back at the history of each of these cities to kind of understand what the letter meant in a, in, a, in a deeper way. We don't have to go that far back in Laodicea to see the picture here. You go back 30 or 40 years from when this letter was written, and Paul loved the church of Laodicea. Paul writes in Colossians 2.1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for those who have not seen me face to face. He goes, oh, you're dear to my heart. He's writing to the church of Colossae, but he goes, oh, don't forget the Laodiceans. I love them. He loved them so much that a few chapters later, we realize that just like he wrote a book to the Colossians, and just like he wrote a book to the church of, of Ephesus, he wrote an epistle to Laodicea. Did you know there was a Pauline book written to Laodicea, the book of Laodicea? It says in Colossians 4.16, When this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from the Laodicea. He's like, I sent one to them, I sent one to you. When you're done, swap letters, make sure you hear it all. Because there was a book, some of you are like, I've never heard it. You're looking, flipping through your Bibles. Where is the book of Laodicea? If there was a book of Laodicea, why, or of Laodicea, why is it not in the Bible anymore? 
Did they get such a bad reputation after the book of Revelation that people say, yeah, don't read that? No, in reality, we don't have an authoritative copy of the book of Laodicea. However, John Wycliffe in 1300s in England included the letter to the Laodiceans in his English translation of the Bible until people came around him and said, John, don't do that. We don't have an accurate translation. We don't have anything actually from the original language. And interestingly, most of the book of Laodicea was a uh, series of quotes from the book of Philippians, which just goes to show you that all preachers recycle material. You know, if, if Paul rewrote some material and set it off to Laodiceans, then if you ever hear me tell a story twice, deal with it. Okay, Paul did it, and that's my, that's my uh, license to recycle material right there. So if there was a letter from Paul to Laodicea, he was, they were dear to him. But from world history, we also learn other things about the church of Laodicea. Laodicea as a city was a banking center. There were huge investments around the known world from the people of Laodicea, and they were incredibly independent. In 1960, or 1960, in 60 AD, minor difference, <laughs> in 60 AD, 30 years before this letter is written, a major earthquake hit Laodicea. It was the fifth one in about 10 years. This one devastated the city. And even though they were a valuable extension of the Roman Empire, they chose to reject all help from Rome in rebuilding their city. Said, we don't want your money, we don't want your soldiers, we'll do it ourselves. The best known historian of the time, Publius Cornelius Tacitus, wrote this. Laodicea rose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources with no help from us. It's the kind of people they were. Now, one more little bit of, of background on there. Geographically, the lay of the land of Laodicea made it very difficult to defend itself. And it wasn't that they were actually geographically uh, vulnerable because they were fairly well protected by mountains and that sort of thing. There was one area of Laodicea where the valley was so narrow that they built a sports arena by putting bleachers on both sides of the hills and a wall at each end. It was like a natural amphitheater. But the problem with Laodicea is they had no source of water. There was no water anywhere. Who builds a city where there's no water? And so they would find water from external sources. And they had two basic sources of water. There was a hot spring in the city of Heropolis, about six miles away. And they would bring that water to their city through a series of aqueducts when it got there, it wasn't hot anymore. Now, you can imagine the value of unlimited hot water, right? Every father of a large family says, surely, these are the end of days. Unlimited hot water, anywhere I can get it. But it was not hot when it got to them. The other source was in Colossa. They could carry water from there. They did not have an aqueduct from there. It was a cold water spring. When it got to them, it was lukewarm. So keep this all in mind. And because they did not have a water source... All you had to do to conquer Laodicea was shut off the aqueduct. And suddenly they had nothing. So over the centuries, they had developed this military way of dealing with attack. Anytime they were approached by marauders, and this happened more times than history can count, they immediately would send someone out to compromise. Oh, we're under attack. Let's compromise. They're going to shut off the water. Let's compromise. The word compromise sounds so wise but it's actually pretty drastic. 
A compromise is an arrangement by which both parties agree to assume similar levels of misery. It's like, okay, that's a compromise. We'll take it. We're not going to take the whole city, but we're going to take some land. Okay, well, we didn't lose the whole city, but we did lose some land. And they started losing land on the right and on the left, and their area of operation got smaller and smaller and smaller because every time they compromised, they had a little bit less freedom. So let's take a look at how Jesus introduces himself to this church that is uh, living under having very little water and, and decreasing land. Most people, when they introduce themselves, have a stock introduction, don't they? People say, hey, who are you? What do you do? And you just have this little blurb. You know, I'm, I'm Randy. I, I pastor a, uh, a church. Da, da, da. You, do you do this? Do you have your little elevator speech? We went to Kelsey's high school reunion. It was like 10th or 15th year high school reunion. And if you've ever been the trophy spouse at one of these things, you know that nobody really listens to you, right? They're there to see your spouse because they went to that high school. And so I learned very quickly that when people asked me, what do I do? Nobody was listening. So I started making stuff up. And uh, I, I told one guy I was a, a, a brain surgeon. And I uh, told one guy I was a race car driver. Told one guy I was a rocket scientist. Uh, and then I actually told one guy who seemed to be listening that I was the bass player for U2. And he goes, that's great. And just, you know, nobody's listening to anything. And so you can vary your introduction. But in, the, in this case, Jesus, in every one of the seven letters, varies his introduction a little bit. Some of you are looking at Kelsey going, did he really do? Yeah, he did. Jesus varies his introduction. The difference between Jesus and me at the, at the class reunion is everything Jesus says about himself is true. But he varies his introduction to the people that he is talking to. So let's look, what does he say to them in Revelation 3.14? See, I promised we'd get to the Bible. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The word Amen, we all know very well. We end our prayers with it. It means, so be it. That's, we kind of commit our will to his will at the end of the prayer, as it is in earth, uh, as it is in heaven to be on earth. Amen. So be it. When Jesus says he is the amen, he says, I am the one who makes it so. It's a much firmer thing. We've all said amen to prophetic prayers that were kind of part prayer, part wish, right? Like, ah, that it doesn't rain today. Amen. Let's kind of throw it up there. So be it. That's not his amen. His amen is a lot firmer than that. One commentary said that his amen was like, like the declaration, I am the finisher of this. Many of you remember George Bush, 43, the second one. He had a, a complicated relationship with the English language. He was a very, very smart man, but he would periodically get himself talked into corners, and he would just say things that came off awkwardly. And, and when he would get pressured in press conferences, he said it a number of times, he'd say, I'm the decider. And that meant, you know, the buck stops with me. Jesus was not just the decider, okay? He was the finisher. He said, I'm not just saying amen and throwing it up there and hoping God takes care of it. I finish it this way. Hebrews 12 calls Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. Some of you are looking at your storyline going, you're the author of this? Like, yeah, he's, he's not finished. He's not done. And he is writing it to a good ending. Some of the twists and turns were our own doing, but the author will finish the story. And his introduction to the Laodicean says, I'm the finisher, okay? Stick with me. That alone would encourage them. But then he takes the pen in his hand, and it goes a little bit further. He said, I am the amen. I am faithful and true. We will learn he is saying this to the Laodiceans because he is saying to them, I am what you are not. I am 
what you have never been able to pull off. There are people in your life that you should have been able to count on. Parents, leaders, maybe pastors, but they weren't faithful and they weren't true. Jesus said, I am all the things that you expected justifiably from other people that they did not deliver to you. I am the fullness of that. I am, amen, I am faithful and true. He says, I am the beginning of God's creation. Now, that does not mean he was the first thing created. Okay, that, you can read that and go, was Jesus a created being? No. Early in church history, the bishop of Alexandria was a man named Arius. And Arius came up with the idea that because Jesus was begotten, he must have been created. And if he was created, are we worshiping a created being? And, and it became a controversy. And out of that came the Council of Nicaea in 325. And the Council of Nicaea said, we have to, like, we got to land this idea because it's not true he's a created being. And the first two sentences of that council, what they issued, it's a mouthful, but it makes a difference. They said, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, born of the Father before the ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, co-substantial with the Father. Through him, all things were made. They're like, no, 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 not so fast, Arius. Jesus is co-substantial with the Father. He is the same stuff. And that is what Jesus is saying when he introduces himself to the Laodiceans. I am the amen. I am the finisher. I am faithful and I am true and I am like God himself standing here in front of you. And he starts in verse 15 with the letters. He says, Revelation 3.15, I know your works. Remember that phrase? Pops up almost every week. I know your works. It's good news for the Philadelphians, not such good news for the Laodiceans. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm, you are neither hot nor cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. He uses this illustration that they would fully understand because of their water sources. Oh, you're not hot like comes from the hot springs. You're not cold that comes from the cold. You're like, you're like this lukewarm. And then he says, I'll spit you out of my mouth. The, the actual word is even, it's more coarse than that. It's like, I will vomit you out. It's Jesus saying, pull the car over. I got to get out. Because your inability to be hot or cold is making me sick. Now, we, we think of that, and we've heard this preached, actually, that you need to be hot and on fire for God, and that's what that meant. It's not what that means, in the words of Indigo Montoya. Do I need to finish it? I do not think that means what you think it means. It's not about being hot for God, okay? Because he said, I'm okay if you're cold. Be hot, be cold. It's lukewarm. It makes me want to barf. What he's saying there is be useful. Like, be malleable. Be something. You can, man, hot water. You can do a lot with hot water. Add vegetables. You got soup. Okay, you're like, you can do stuff with hot water. You can do a lot with cold water. It's refreshing. Lukewarm water? Oh, I got to cool it down or I got to warm it up. I, I can't use it the way it is. He's not saying be hot for God. He's saying make yourself useful. It's very practical. It isn't a matter of being hot or fervor for him. The lukewarm person that Jesus is warning them not to be is one that might have a great place in history, but they've positioned themselves as not being useful to God. They don't respond to him. 
They don't hear him when he speaks. They don't beseech him when there's an opportunity. I think it would have been a lukewarm Sunday morning if we had not stepped into intercession this morning on behalf of the unborn. I said, no, no, this is, this, we can be useful. We can shift heaven here. That's usefulness. He said, be hot or be cold. Don't be lukewarm. In most cases, people don't know the difference. The Laodiceans didn't. They didn't perceive their own situation. Humanity is terrible at understanding exactly where they are before the Lord. We're bad at it. And he goes on in Revelation 3, 17 to say, For you say, you know it's bad when Jesus starts saying, let's talk about what you say and then we'll talk about what I say. He says, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. For you say, not realizing, there is what I call a reality gap there. How you perceive things versus how they really are. Every one of us deals with some element of reality gap. Where we see something, perhaps our own spiritual walk, in a way that Jesus would say, well, you say, but I see it different. You're like, no, Randy, I think I'm pretty good at evaluating myself. No, you're not. You're just not. Because you made nine excuses to get where you are. And so we're, we're just, we don't see it. Physical example, okay? I am almost completely unaware that I am short 99% of the time. I don't think about it. I don't get it. I, know, I am. If you're watching, you've never been here, I'm short. Now we know. Okay. But I don't wake up and go, put on my short pants. <laughs> go to live my short little life. You know, I just don't think about it. I never think about it. I never think about it until I see a picture of me standing to somebody next to somebody who's tall. And then I laugh and I go, oh yeah, I forgot I was short. Because you don't, you, you understand what I'm saying? You don't perceive yourself accurately. Laodicea did not perceive themselves accurately. And there's a reality gap between how they see themselves and how the Lord sees them. Make it the prayer of your heart. Oh, sweet Lord Jesus, how do you see me? Not how do I see myself. Examine me. Pour through me. Reveal to me the things that I do not see. Because I don't even know I'm short. And everybody knows I'm short. We do not perceive ourselves accurately. They felt rich. They didn't realize they had traded away massive chunks of their property in compromise. They had given up all kinds of ground. Every time they were attacked, what should we do? Lead with compromise. It was like, there's a joke here to be made about the French. I won't make it. I won't make it. But it's, it's there. Compromise at every, every hand. And every time they compromised, their territory got smaller and their freedom got to be less. Does this sound familiar? Every time we compromise, we have less freedom and less room to move. Room to move. And part of the pain of Jesus' heart for the Laodiceans is the pain of a parent who sees a child settling for less than what they might have had because they compromised. They might have been fine with their spiritual state. He was not. They'd be attacked from the left, they'd compromise. They'd be attacked from the right, they'd compromise. And pretty soon they had less and less room to maneuver. And they're saying, how are you? We're fine, we're rich, we're happy. No, you're not. 
You're poor compared to what you could have had. In fact, the things that you take great value in don't matter that much anymore. The military that negotiates always tells itself it's getting the best deal it could have gotten. But history tells us it could have gotten a better deal had it been prepared before it got attacked. But we prefer negotiation and compromise to preparation. Now, you may not be directly attacked, but you are faced with almost unlimited opportunities to compromise. And when you make compromises, you live with them by saying, well, it's not so bad, but we are not the ones to determine what is so bad. That's what got us into compromise to begin with. Compromise can, can come at you various ways. can come at you as a sin or even in compromise of your vision. Both of them are tragic. It's late at night. Everybody in your house is asleep. You're enjoying a few quiet minutes. You're scrolling through Netflix. And there are things there that you would never think of watching if everyone in the house was awake. And you think, well, I, I can skip parts. I, I can. And you find yourself in compromise. You're on the job, and maybe there's a right way to do things, and nobody will know if you cut corners except you and Jesus. And you're tempted. And in, in our work environment today, it's more likely than ever before. With remote work, it's so easy. There's a story in the news this week about a principal from Rhode Island who they just discovered had simultaneously been a vice principal of a church in, of a, of a school in Washington, D.C. He was juggling Zoom meetings, had two jobs. So easy to compromise. Maybe your compromise is entirely internal. You know what the Lord has called you to in the way of attitude and in being a, a positive and an upbeat person and disciplining your, your mental life. And you have compromised in those areas and you started getting lazy and a sense of entitlement slips in, you start thinking things like, it is not right that this should happen to me, it's not right that people treated me that way, and you find yourself entertaining bitterness that would not have come in there had you not compromised in your thought life. And not all compromise is personal. Some of it is vision, and it can still be crushing. Sometimes we compromise in God-given goals that the Lord has set us. It's when you adjust what the Lord told you to do in order to meet the level of what those around you will affirm. The Lord ever given you a vision that you were the only one really bought in on? And so you dial down the vision so that you get the affirmation from friends because they think you can pull that off, but you've actually compromised. I'll be honest, in relation to the bridge, I this is one thing that it weighs on me, not because I feel, feel pressure from people, but I, I feel the weight of the danger of compromise. God is telling us to build something very unique here. And some of our building blocks and some of the ways we do it seem counter to conventional wisdom of how you be, build the next big flashy thing. And, and I, I don't want to compromise on vision. I want us to build what the Lord is calling us to build. And maybe that means it takes a while to dig the deep foundation before we build tall. But that's what he's asked us to do. We never compromise our way to victory. When we start to compromise, whatever comes after that is always some form of loss. 
Along the journey, there will be people who say, maybe you should do it this way. Well, maybe you should do it that way. And some of those suggestions will be from the Lord, but some of them will not be. And you've got to hold true to the vision and not compromise. Nobody ever compromised their way to fulfillment. The Laodiceans were people of compromise so much that it affected their vision. They were the opposite of the church of Smyrna. Remember, he said to the church of Smyrna, oh, you, you feel poor, probably because you have no money, but you're actually rich. And he said to the church of Laodicea, you think you're rich? You're poor and naked. You have nothing here. And Jesus begins to give some straight advice to these people to whom he called poor in Revelation 4, 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see Jesus is so subtle in his communication. They made salve in Laodicea. It was the major export of the city. He's like, you making salve? Y'all need salve. You're blind. We gotta, you need to buy into this and you need to buy it from me. I counsel you. He says, when Jesus counsels you, he's not commanding, but let's be honest, you don't have a lot of good options. And he counsels them in light of their poverty to buy from him gold refined from the fire. Jesus is interesting to do business with because we bring nothing. We bring nothing. My kids have these trading events where they go get all of the stuff that they don't want from their room and they meet. It's like a Native American powwow. You know, everybody brings their treasure, the stuff that they really don't want that suddenly is worth everything. And there's always, you know, they're trying to trade back and forth that doll for that Lego piece that nobody has. And, and you know, you always overhear somebody go, you don't have anything. There's, you don't have anything I want. How do, we, how do we trade with Jesus? What do you got? I got nothing. He says, no, I want you to be conscious of your poverty. I want you to be aware you have nothing. He has always used this idea of buying from him, but he's also emphasized the fact that we bring nothing to the table. He says to the city whose name means the rule of man, he says, buy from me. He says the same thing to us. You've dealt with everybody else, now deal with me. It is a hard pill to swallow for a society like ours that is financially, geographically, politically, militarily, and culturally blessed that we have to deal with him and we bring nothing to the table. Surely we can negotiate. No. And he is saying to us, like he says to the Laodiceans, you're going to need to learn to deal with me and understand your poverty, and the terms of dealing with me are better in this age than they will ever be again. Isaiah 55.1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, because I know you have nothing, okay? I know this, this idea of come and buy is almost a farce. But come, buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. He encourages them to buy gold refined in the fire. He says, I have something for you better than you can imagine, and it only comes to you through the fire that you're in. Job 23.10, Job says, He knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, talking about fire, I will come out as gold. In many ways, 
2021 has been the year of fire for a lot of us. I was texting with somebody this, just this morning, and I said, I don't know that everybody would understand this, but 2021 was harder than 2020. Remember a year ago when we were so convinced that when the calendar snapped over, everything would be hunky-dory? Remember that? Oh, man, we'll be so glad to be out of 2020. And then 2021 hit us in a forehead. And many of us have dealt with the repercussions of that through the entire year. It's been, how many, just, how many has been hard this year? Yeah. It's like 2021, or 2020, we just all locked in our house. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't any fun, but it, like, after a while, it wasn't bad. You realize you could live your life in your pajamas. 2021, we all came back out and went, oh, this is hard. It's fire. It's refining us. We are buying gold when we lean into him in these days. I want to ask if our musicians would come back for just a moment. This, all is, this has been an intense series, but also just a very intense letter to the Laodiceans. But Jesus talks about his motivation, about why he has been this intense. In verse 19, he said, Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. He said, I am talking to you about the fact that you can't see your reality, not because I like pointing it out. I'm telling you this because I want you to wake up. Those that I love, I reprove, and I discipline. He said, I'm not pushing you away. I'm drawing you near. There is a pure love of a father that requires a disciplining hand. It just is. And through these seven letters, over and over again, we see his discipline of the churches. And this is a study guide for us. Lord, what's reality in my life? What's really going on? Not how do I feel. Not do I think things are okay. Are they okay? So interesting. The next verse, he goes on. And he says something that we repeatedly take out of the church world and take it into the non-church world, or take it out of the, the kingdom and take it into the, those who are not part of the kingdom. He tells, and he says this to the church, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will eat with him and he with me. We have relinquished that passage to Billy Graham territory. We've thought that's what Billy Graham preaches to stadiums of unbelievers and people come to Jesus. It's what Jesus preached to the church. It's like, hey guys, open the door. I just ran to the car to get something. And you're not letting me, like there's no room for me at the table? Let me in. Party's going on inside. Some of them are not even aware that he's left. Because remember, we can't see ourselves very well. We don't accurately the condition of our heart. I want you to stand with me for a moment. As we go back into a couple of minutes of worship here, this is the prayer I want to pray. Lord, show me the condition of my heart. Lord, I don't want to think what, what people tell me. I don't want to think about how I've justified the decisions I'm making. Lord, if there is compromise in my life, Reveal it to me. 
reveal to me the decision that I made three days ago that I was okay with, that I was only okay with because you were on the outside knocking, trying to get in. So Father, as we turn our hearts towards you for just a few minutes here, God, what is the condition of our heart? Lord, what is the condition of the bridge? What is the condition that we have been blind to because we just do not see it in our own lives? Father God, will you discipline as a loving father and reveal to us those areas of our lives where we have compromised? Just begin to ask him those questions. Father, where you find compromise, bring it to our attention. Father, where you see us trading away territory, show it to us, God. We want to take hold of every bit of life that you offer us. We don't want to trade it away and compromise, God. Begin to ask you you find yourself limited, find yourself experiencing limited freedom. You go, I used to feel freer, and I don't right now. Ask him, where did I trade property away? Where did I trade land away with compromise? gracious man in the universe wants to extend grace this morning. Even if some of you are being reminded of just areas that you just kind of cut corners. It's not okay with him. You've made it okay with you. Take that to him this morning. There is ground to be taken back.
Continue to engage with him for a couple of minutes here. Father, search our hearts. Where are the areas that we have said we're fine? It's them, it's not us. Show us where it's us, God. 